Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Merritt Clifton of Animals 24-7. Merritt was a past guest of ours, and he was on episode number 67, and this is going to be episode uh, 169. So we've, we've been about 100 episodes since our last chat with Merritt. And if you're interested in finding out how Merritt got started, his history, I definitely recommend you go to the communitycatspodcast.com, search Merritt Clifton or number 67, and the episode will pop right up. But today we are going to be focusing on statistics. So Merritt, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Well, thank you for joining me again. I appreciate it so much. It's always such an honor to have you on the show and it's it's great fun having conversations with you. And I had asked you to come on the show to talk a fair amount focusing on statistics and how are statistics good for us when we are dealing with our free roaming cat issues. And so I just thought maybe you would touch upon the history of statistics and capturing statistics as you've seen it over time. And and then we could maybe look forward and see what might work for us going forward in the future. Well, to begin at the very beginning, the first systematic attempt to estimate the cat population of the U.S., which at that time were entirely free-roaming cats, was done by Frank Chapman of the American Museum of Natural History in 1908. Uh, unfortunately, his findings were then picked up by the U.S. Public Health Service and an ornithologist named Edward Forbush, who was an inveterate cat hater, and they pretty much immediately used the numbers that Chapman had come up with to claim that the country was being overrun by cats, to blame cats for the huge destruction of bird populations, it was basically caused by transforming a wooded continent into farms and fields and factories and touch off pogrom, uh, anti-cat pogrom uh, across the United States that lasted for years and echoes of it are still among us. In that period of time when cat hatred was in the United States was nearing a peak, Howard and Clara Trumbull who were then graduate students uh, developing what became the National Family Opinion Survey, looked at the same problem. They uh, also established an estimate of the total number of cats. They subdivided it between pet cats and pre-roaming cats who were not somebody's pet, alley cats, they called them in those days. And they also did estimates of dogs. They came up with numbers that were fairly consistent with what Chapman had come up with, but by an entirely different process of reasoning. And it showed growth that was more or less what you'd expect in the pet population due to the increasing affluence of American families. They were looking at numbers in the range of 20 million cats, 
most of whom were at large. The Trumbulls came back to that in 1937, uh, replicating their survey for the Corning Glass Company, which was interested in the subject because they were selling pet food in those days in canning jars as opposed to tin cans like we know it today. They found then that the cat population had increased to around 30 million. And again, this reflected the growth of the human population because the cats were largely dependent, even though they weren't indoor pets for the most part, largely dependent on food sources created by humans that attracted mice and rats. And then there was a transition period in American society, the post-World War II transition phase. And one of the things that came about uh, as a result of developments during the war in packaging was the introduction of canned pet food. And the American Can Company sponsored the Trumbulls to do another survey. Uh, This time, they spent three years doing it. And it really became, for almost half a century, the baseline information that we used for calculating practically every kind of humane progress involving dogs and cats. And they were the first to document that cats were beginning to come into homes in great numbers. Almost a third of the cat population at that point were at least part of the time in homes. And then there was a long leg. Nobody really seriously looked at the numbers of cats again until the there was one survey of the shelter traffic done in the mid-1980s. But the next look at an overview was one that I did in 1991, 91-92. Uh, by that time, the total cat population had just about doubled, and we'd reached a point where it was about a 60-40 ratio of indoor to outdoor, and that's 40% outdoor, 60% indoor. There were some surveys of the pet population done, by the way, during that interim period, but they had not attempted to look at the total cat population, only at the number who were owned uh, pets being fed uh, store-bought cat food. They hadn't looked at all who was out there on their own. TNR came in big time in the very early 90s, and brought about a drastic reduction, about 75% reduction over 10 years in the number of cats coming into animal shelters. But the biggest question was, what was going on with outdoor population who were remaining at large? And I looked at this through several different metrics. One was roadkill counts where they were available and where I had comparative data over a period of time. And cats pretty much fell off the charts in roadkill counts. They went from yep. being one of the most commonly roadkilled species as of 1937, when the first roadkill count that I was aware of was done, to being, by the early 2000s, it would be rare to see a cat who was roadkilled because cats were just no longer around at anything like the numbers that they once had been. Another one that I looked at was, of course, because it was available, was the shelter traffic. And another one were what I call area surveys, where somebody actually takes a geographical area and does a systematic count of what's living there, not just cats, but other wildlife. And that's important because there's some 
areas, some parts of the country that are just plain more hospitable to outdoor cats than others. And there's an inherent uh, fallacy in multiplying stats from one part of the country or even one part of town over the whole without compensating for the places that are not as good habitat. You tend to have clusters of cats around one particular uh, fast food restaurant or dumpster or somewhere where somebody's feeding them. But then you may have blocks and blocks and blocks with no outdoor cats at all, depending on the quality of the habitat, what else is in the habitat, et cetera. And that brings me to what I think is my most important point, uh, probably this entire conversation. I think that various researchers, myself included, have done just about everything that can be done with what I'd call top-down data and projections. What we need to be able to do to better assess progress, better assess ecological impacts, uh, better take into account these regional variations, we need the bricks to build upward. We need a lot more and better local data. We need counts over time of the populations of individual outdoor colonies. We need comparative counts of outdoor colonies with uh, bird populations, other native wildlife populations. It, we need to be able to do more to assess, for example, the differences between where you are in southern Vermont and where somebody might be in Gainesville, Florida, there's an astronomical difference in the carrying capacity of those habitats. Gainesville, Florida would probably have at least four times the maximum carrying capacity for outdoor cats in southern Vermont because it doesn't have anywhere near the numbers of competing uh, mesa predators it doesn't have nearly as many fast food restaurants, parks where people might feed birds or other wildlife outdoors. The bird feeding tends to be more seasonal. There's just a, a whole lot of key differences. And what I see a lot, and it does tend to scare the hell out of people who are concerned about birds, are projections from places where there's lots of cats and it's easy to count cats to the entire North America, where there really aren't lots of cats, and it's not so damn easy to count them. So you would say you're starting from the sort of the bottom up, so looking at regions, rather than saying the whole nation, I'm even thinking even regional sort of assignments. So, you know, New England would have one divisor. We have all these calculations where we take population, human population, and we divide it by a magical I, number, and then we can figure would, out how I many cats like we have. Be, I'd like it to be even more granular than that. Because, yep. for example, I did a lot of my early work with feral cats and statistics pertaining to them in New England, and I became aware that there were colossal differences in what you would find in Boston, Connecticut, or should say Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, where there's a fairly dense human population and very good habitat for feral cats, as opposed to Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, where most of the habitat is quite hostile, that you would have the New England urban suburban population uh, versus an upstate rural population. And some of the rural areas 
of New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, you might not have the carrying capacity for more than one uh, outdoor cat per square mile. Mm-hmm. There's other places in southern New England where you could conceivably have a population of 300 per square mile, which is the maximum density that raccoons got to. You could compare the carrying, even though they're very different animals, you could compare the potential carrying capacity for cats to that of raccoons just on the basis of their animals of similar size who do eat some of the same things. What do you think about weighting the the factors in there, too? How about weighting a certain area based on median income values or maybe even some health factors within that community to poverty levels and that kind of thing? That would then, I would think, would give the potential for that community to have a higher rate of free-roaming cats than another community that has you know a higher median income level. There are definitely weighting weighting factors, factors. but the obvious socio-demographic weighting factors, in my experience, are pretty much irrelevant. What I found were things like the presence of stone walls in a community would increase the carrying capacity of the habitat, and you say, well, what in the heck does that have to do with it? (laughs) It actually has a lot to do with it, because... Those stone walls provide the cracks and crevices where the mice live. They provide the hiding places for the cats. They provide the uh, cats like to walk around edges. They don't like to go through open space. So basically, the more protected edge habitat you have that's very favorable to mice, the potentially the more uh, outdoor cats you're going to have. Whereas if you have an area that's all spacious lawns, it might be great for deer, but it's not going to be so great for cats. Uh, you can have a, an area that's low income, but is very high density, high rise housing, and that will be usually very poor habitat for cats because there's just not a lot of place for them to hide. And the mice are five stories up, and you know, cats don't have a way to get to them. They can't take the elevators, which most cats can't. So the, the cats are either in somebody's apartment uh, or they're not there. On the other hand, you can have an older neighborhood of single-family frame houses with crawl space basements and fairly accessible refuse, and that can be an outdoor cat heaven. Same thing with the affluent people. There were affluent neighborhoods, stonewall-lined yards, lots of tree cover and so forth. that had some of the richest outdoor cat habitat I saw, And there are others, as I mentioned, with the manicured lawns, where even in climatically favorable habitat, you would find almost no outdoor cats. And another part of that would be if they had free-roaming dogs running around the property, you're not going to see a lot of cats there. So there are weighting factors. But the best way that I've found to weight, whether I'm surveying cats or surveying street dogs, which I've done a lot of, is to do a line transect. What I do and what I recommend is to literally walk all the way across the area you're trying to survey uh, from multiple directions, multiple points, and you count what you see, and you learn thereby what parts of town or what parts of the city block, or whatever you're, you're transecting, have the most of 
whatever it is and what has the least. And then you can get out your uh, aerial survey map and calculate how many of X type of habitat you have compared to Y habitat. That's really the only way to do it. Otherwise, if you don't use the uh, aerial photos and so forth, and if you don't do the transects, you, you really don't have any idea how the habitat's going to uh, balance out and stratify. And I've done things, and other people have done things like multiply the cat population and dog population around fast food restaurants, strip malls, dumpsters by the number of such things in a community. And that, yeah, it sort of works, but it's not good enough. Mm-hmm. I want something a lot better than that because, for example, some shopping malls are almost all indoors. The food supply is all in a food court. People aren't right. taking the food outside, so it's not accessible to mice and rats. It will be accessible to cats. Other places, it's exactly the opposite. Does your organization not have a clear vision of what its goals and objectives are? Does it seem like everyone on your board has a different idea of what you should be doing and how to do it? Well, I can help you with a visioning workshop. I offer affordable, quick and painless strategic planning services for a small organization. I can even offer my services virtually. Are you interested? Just reach out to me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at communitycatspodcast.com. Support Boston's Gifford Cat Shelter Spring Soiree and Silent Auction on April 22nd from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Needham Town Hall. There will be fun food and festivities. For more information, go to giffordspringsoiree.org or go to giffordcatsshelter.org. If you were part of a group just starting out in a relatively new community and they didn't have a great sense of what they might know of a few colonies, and that's how they've gotten involved in that community. But if they wanted to try and say, okay, well, what are we, what are we taking on here, or even just to get some estimates, what would be your, your first steps would be to take that walk through that area and yeah, the, the lay of the land? It, this is going to make it difficult, very difficult for some people. You have to do it night and day, mm-hmm. especially with cats because your true ferals are going to be 100% nocturnal. They're not going to be really easily seen, and you have to be out there in their habitat at night to know they're there. You're never going to find them by day. You can try to bait them out with daytime feeding. I advise against that for a whole lot of reasons, but even the most assiduous feeder is still not going to get your true feral to come out very much or very rapidly by daytime. They've evolved to hunt rodents at night. They've learned to hunt rodents at night. Daytime is when they get their beauty sleep. Of course, all cats are beautiful, but those who get their rest are probably more beautiful than others. (laughs) You used to have a a listing of states um, when you had animal people, and you decided to stop carrying that list. And I thought maybe we could segue into sort of why you decided to stop um, having that list as well as what what would be the role with shelter statistics in with our community cat count awareness? Well, after 25 years, I quit doing the state. It wasn't just state, it was community, actually, at the community level. I quit doing those surveys because 
they had become misleading and people were competing for the wrong thing. Instead of trying to reduce shelter admissions by reducing the population of animals at large and at need, the competition had been to increase the live release rate, which meant basically throw them out the door by any means you could, regardless of the outcome. And people were bragging about numbers that they really shouldn't have bragged about. The other problem that I was seeing more and more is that the shelter traffic was less and less reflective of what was out there. The advent of TNR meant that a great number of cats at large are no longer coming into shelters. There's no longer a central counting point. It used to be that you could pretty well assume that what was coming through shelters was representative of what was large in the community, whether you're talking about stray dogs or you know, feral cats that have the misfortune to be trapped and brought to a shelter. These days, shelters are probably only seeing a small fraction of the numbers of either cats or dogs in the community because there's so many independent rescuers and rescue groups who are doing their thing with no central reporting. So the, the data is less and less indicative, uh, shoulder data, less and less indicative of what's really going on, and especially on the cat side of things. What ideally I would have would be some sort of systematic uh, reporting or survey system whereby I could look at a community and I could see how many uh, cats were in neuter return programs, how many dogs were in fostering programs that sort of thing, but that doesn't exist, and I don't think it ever will exist because people who do TNR or dog rescue are, there are more people who are inclined to care about animals and less people who are inclined to care about statistics. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, the statistics are extremely important, and we need to get a lot better at tracking them. One thing I do, by the way, uh, there's several different surveys available um, pretty much annually of consumer habits relative to dogs and cats, what they buy. And one of those surveys looks at what people buy for dogs and cats generally. The other looks at what people buy for their own pets. And I find that comparing this data is instructive because the difference between the two, and they always differ by about 10%, the difference between the two may be uh, the difference between uh, which cats are fed outdoors, which dogs are fostered, and which are kept as pets. And looking at that, it points toward a fed outdoor cat population of not more than about eight and a half million cats in the United States, probably less. It's interesting. It's interesting. I don't think we look at at industry efforts enough um, to be able to use them in our research. Um, so I think it's fascinating that you're you're turning towards that that area and looking at at industry. I mean, going way back to corn and glass. You know, well, this could be at done even research. on a community basis. There's some shelters now, like here in Seattle, where they're working with local local supermarkets to try to identify people with unregistered dogs based on who's buying dog food. 
But local cat rescue organizations might be able to do something similar uh, if they get cooperation of supermarkets to let them know uh, how much cat food they're selling and then compare mm-hmm. that to how many cats veterinarians are seeing. This is another good, simple quote-unquote, because it's not all that simple, but it's accessible data. You can find out how many cats veterinarians in your community are seeing versus how many cats people are buying food for. And somewhere in that gap between the ones that don't go to the vet or go only for sterilization and the uh, number that are being fed, you'll have your outdoor population to part of the measure. I I think this whole topic is is incredibly fascinating. Um, There is an online software package called catstats.org that organizations can use to track their the colonies that they're they're working on. As we've said, nothing is ever 100% perfect, but um, it's definitely a, a start in the direction of really tracking what's going on out in the community and, and what life is like for our cats out there rather than declaring a community is, you know, super and wonderful because the local shelter has a high live release rate. That's not representing the quality of cats in the whole community, you know, beyond the This brought up something else very, very important. There's very little longevity data that anybody's put together on outdoor cats. And at this point, you know, this is now 25 years after I did the longevity uh, survey that I did in Connecticut. And I'm still not seeing anybody doing a, a similar mosaic of when cats come in, what's their health status? What do they weigh? How many of them have X, Y, Z? And then uh, what I did, I was not able to follow up, but it would be very interesting to, to see what percentage. I was able to estimate by the age of the cat at the time the cat was picked up and sterilized more or less how many had managed to live 10 years, how many had managed to live two years, how many were were still kittens, that kind of thing. But to make that uh, really meaningful, you need to have actual before and after data where somebody had microchipped and then tracked these cats over time, sort of like banding birds where you you retrap the cat at 10 years of age and you can see that this cat was microchipped at, say, two years of age manage to survive out there. What is the percentage? We're looking at data from uh, one part of the country in one two-year time frame, and that's still really just about all there is for the whole damn country. Yeah, I mean, and everybody wants to always share the information that, you know, outdoor cats live by far a much shorter lifespan and poorer quality of life than our, our indoor well, cats. I think it's indisputable that it's a shorter lifespan, but the quality of life issue is the one where I'm not convinced that they have a poor quality of life. What I saw, you could measure it kind of by half-lives. A cat that survives X length of time is much more likely to survive yet a longer period of time. And the cats in that study, anyway, of 320 cats, only 19 of them had conditions that required euthanasia. And of those 19, if I remember right, 10 were kittens. Uh, so if basically if the cat survived kittenhood, 
it had a pretty damn good chance of having a healthy adulthood. And what happens to a cat who's in the wild, living as a wild animal, is the same thing that happens with skunks, squirrels, raccoons, etc. If they become diseased or disabled, they get picked off by another predator pretty damn fast. Right. But this is also where a place like uh, Florida, for example, uh, high traffic, uh, a lot of the areas we find cats don't have coyotes, uh, don't have foxes. Uh, the cats are too big for, once they reach adulthood, to be uh, victims of hawks, owls, eagles. And they're not going where the gators are. The gators have taken over the, the habitat niche for predators of other animals that go into the swamps, but you know, cats don't like water so well, so they're they're not peddling around the swamp. So there's a greater likelihood in a habitat like that that you're going to find a cat who has a poor quality of life than in a place like Vermont, where you have quite a few other mesa predators, and all of them will eat cats if they can. Right, right. Merritt, if folks are interested in finding out more about Animals 24, and I believe you're coming up on an anniversary, how would they do that? www.animals24-7 or dash 7 dot org. And we have uh, extensive menus. Uh, you can search on any topic you like, feral cats, TNR, etc. We post a new article almost every day. April 12, uh, almost midnight, uh, April 12, 2014, was when we first went online. So today, April 13, is for all practical purposes uh, our third anniversary. And you said, how many articles have you printed since you started publishing? Uh, about 1,030. That's amazing. It's incredible. I mean, I am amazed at doing, you know, 169 episodes and just to think being over a thousand, I mean, you are a wealth of information. Is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners before we uh, finish up today? Well, I would like to thank my wife and assistant, Beth, for her contributions to getting these thousands out. You'll be talking to her soon. And I'd like to thank your listeners. And of course, thank the cats. Well, Merritt, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show again, agreeing to be a guest. And you are by far the most knowledgeable person when it comes to pre-roaming cats, feral cats, TNR, and cat statistics. So I want to thank you for uh, sharing statistics with us today, and I hope we'll have you on in the future. Thank you very much. The Community Cats podcast will soon be a year old with over 200 episodes profiling amazing people who are all making a difference in the lives of community cats. If you would like to support the show but not be a sponsor, feel free to contribute to our efforts by going to www.communitycatspodcast.com and follow the donate link. Help us to continue to provide excellent programming. Ah!